Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we've got a, a, a great episode for you coming up covering a bunch of different topics that all fall under the disaster heading there. And we've got a, a regular returning guest come in and talk about some of these things, which I'm excited about. But before we can get to him, we have to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley, who is calling in to us on her phone using the uh, Zoom app, but we are happy to have her with us. So, hey, Sam. Well, actually, I'm on Zoom on the phone, but it's not going to have the audio quality that I usually have. I move around from place to place in my dog care business, and some have good internet and some don't. So here we are. Well, our guest tonight is our wonderful Dan Zaner from uh, Oregon now. And uh, he's been busy this week putting the kids to school, right, Dan? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's it's back to school, and wife is back to teaching school, and it is uh, air on fire over here. <laughs> Even without the wildfires going on. So, well, As long as your beard isn't on fire, I guess you're okay. Not currently, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can happen. Um, well, gee, you know, when we first started talking, you mentioned you wanted to talk about the wildfires in Hawaii. And since then, a lot of other stuff has happened, um, like the floods in Libya. But we've talked about floods quite a lot. So let's focus on the wildfires and the earthquake. And you, you sent a comment to me um, in the message and the messages about that. So we're going to get to that. We want to start out with uh, Hawaii. Yeah. Tell us, you uh, know, as far as infrastructure, there is none. I mean, (laughs) was Hawaii in no way expecting something like this to happen? It kind of seems like that, doesn't it? Um, It was so fast. Um, You know, the uh, you could see how some of the pictures, there's only a couple of houses that survived, but the rest just gone um and so really interesting to see how the intersection of the built environment we talked about this a lot is there's there's never a disaster without the intersection of a natural hazard and where people live and it's especially uh sad when you see actually two of two of our hazards we're going to talk about now the wildfires in and Hawaii and the earthquake in Morocco just come from not being used to those types of hazards and not having the, the right uh, you know, building materials and evacuation procedures and all the response uh, things in place from a place like you know, Pacific Northwest or Colorado or California. It's like, yeah, we're, we're used to wildfires. We know how to deal with those. Hawaii just doesn't. Um, and so that's, it was really yeah. sad to see. It's just, they're just not prepared to respond to an event like that. So what do you mean by evaporation procedures? Yeah, e- evacuation procedures, right? Oh, right. evacuate. Uh, I was going to say, did I miss Not evaporation, thing? no. Evacuation, evacuation. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it didn't seem like they had a whole lot of time to do that. Right. And I can imagine these people going, what? Wildfire? Oh, that can't be happening. But, yeah, uh, well, and you think back a couple of a uh, couple of years ago, I can't remember what year it was, but there was that mistaken uh, alert for a ballistic missile launch. Uh, in oh Hawaii, yeah, you know, and 
you might have some people who are kind of gun shy about these uh, official messages for evacuations after something like that. Yeah, that can happen. Well, being the structural expert that you are, what was it about the two homes that survived that helped them survive? That's a, a good question. And um, I, I hate to disappoint this time, but I am waiting on some info from some colleagues to, to answer that that question. But I could speak to the methodology that I know they're going to be going through is okay. looking at what material they're made of and the site that they're on. You know, did they have def- more defensible, defensible space? than the rest of the houses in that community. Meaning, um, we, we talk about that um, out here in Oregon. Uh, do you have enough uh, physical real estate around your house without combustible fuels in it so that a fire can't jump from tree line to your house? So that's a, that would be, uh, I imagine, something that the uh, research community will be looking at. Another would be, um, you know, what's the roof material? made out of especially um you know was there a, a common construction type maybe a particular type of shingle uh, that was used there that just really lights really quick and maybe these houses that survived had had metal roofs which don't light on fire unless they're really 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 hot <laughs> kind of thing uh so that would be the kind of things that uh i know folks uh in our in our research networks are, are going to be looking at and um, a lot of times when I'm on, I love to highlight the good things that are happening in the NARI network. But uh, sometimes we, we also get to be honest about where we're trying to improve. And this is one of those areas. Uh, I was just on a meeting with the amazing folks uh, in the Converge Leadership Corps. Uh, so it's our, our rapid reconnaissance lead. It's our extreme events uh, research and reconnaissance teams. Uh, geotechnical folks and near shore folks and social science folks and structural engineering folks. And one of the things they talked about that is one of our goals is to build um, data sets from reconnaissance that serve multiple purposes. So all of these uh, extreme events, reconnaissance, we call them the EERs, they have different goals. Some of them are looking at geotechnical, some are looking at uh, the shorelines, and we're looking at systems engineering or social science or structural, um, sustainable materials, public health. They all got different different uh, constituents and concerns and stakeholders they're, they're uh, collecting data from. And the Lahaina fire, the Maui fire came and went and cleanup happened so quickly. They weren't all able to decide, should we send somebody there to take, a da- take data because we, they weren't able to say, this is the minimum amount of data. We need. And so there was an opportunity missed. And so this is one of the things that we're talking about now is what is the minimum amount of data that someone would need to take in any given um, hazard event that would at least wet the whistle and get something for these, these various communities? Because in an event like a wildfire, it comes and goes and the cleanup happens quick, especially in a small town like Bahamas. And one of the things well, that, that I think is that affected this so much, and I, w- I wish we had uh, some of our meteorologists with us, but um, we did talk about it when the fire, right after the fire happened on one of the episodes, was just the, the amazing wind speeds that drove that fire so quickly. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I would hazard a guess just to wonder if, if the average 
um, fire break around a home would have even been able to stop some of the embers from traveling um, based upon the wind speeds. I mean, they were talking about near hurricane force winds gusts oh, yeah. driving this storm, firestorm, really, um, that, um, you know, was one of the things that made it spread so quickly and what made it so devastating. Yeah. Well, one of the things, too, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but not only does Hawaii have a lot of flora and fauna around their their homes, but what kind of trees are they? Are they, like Jamie said, it may not have made a difference with the wind, but, you know, some some tree varieties go up in fire faster than others. So that might have been a factor as well. Yeah. And, and looking at um, this now famous picture and some of the quotes around that, that red roofed house that people are talking about um you know with those hurricane force winds they're blowing around chunks of wood that's on fire it's not just embers and yeah so that hits your asphalt roof that's going to catch on fire um but this house to me looks like they have a clay uh roof tile structure which is Mm. a great insulator well, I can imagine a lot more people are going to have those from this point on. I mean, this would seem like a freak storm, but nothing's freaky anymore. I mean, or it's all Not freaky. anymore, no. I mean, goodness. And, and, <laughs> you know, it's, you never know what to expect. Right. So I'm waiting for and the hurricane. What a opportunity now that they've had this happen, say, okay, let's make sure this doesn't happen again as we rebuild. So uh, you know, I'm hopeful um, that research will be done and that the folks who are uh, talking to contractors and local authorities will, will pay attention to that. Don't want to speculate about what may or may not be happening there. Um, but uh, that would be a great thing to see happen. As yeah, well, it might be interesting to see how many people rebuild because they lost so many people. I can't remember what the number was. Do you, Jamie? Well, the the official number as it stands, I looked it up before we started recording, um, is still at 115. Um, and there's still a large number, uh, like maybe around 100 or maybe a little bit more than that, people that are officially listed as missing um, based upon relatives and friends reporting people missing. So, um, you know, there's some other numbers that are floating around in the multiple hundreds, but based upon official reports, that's what, what's in right now. Um, and, um, so, you know, and I don't think, well, I, this may be one of those situations where as far as a a death toll, we may not know the real number. If there were any homeless living around the area or it got caught in the fire, those kind of things. I just think there's some, there's some variables here that the speed and the intensity of the fire, um, Joe talked about this when he talked about some of the search and rescue efforts there with the USAR teams that um, if the fire was sufficiently hot, that there may not have been re- remains identifiable in by the search dogs. So, you know, these are these are all things that are contributing to what may be a higher death toll than than we come to understand through just counting the numbers that we have. Yeah, it'll have to, you know, see if any of these people turn up or, you know, get more information on were they actually at home at the time. I mean, there's a lot of other things they're going to have to do for like each of those people. But I think you're right. And I think Joe mentioned this, that, you know, there there probably isn't a whole lot of remains as hot as that fire was. But I know they will have gone through and sifted through and tried to find any kind of 
bone fragments and so forth that they could. I mean, that's that's the sad part about it. That's not something we see all the time, right, Dan? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really a, a sad reality of um, you get something started that quickly with with winds that that high. Uh, that's just like being inside of a blast furnace. Do we know what actually started it? Not that I know of. Um, there's been some speculation about. Um, some electrical uh, electric company transformers that had some shorting activity due to the high winds um, or something like that. They, they, the electric company said that there was a confirmed case of an earlier fire that is not linked to this fire started by electric electricity arcing around um, uh, electrical poles. But they're they're not saying that that's exactly what happened with the Lahaina fire, um, and and we, you know this is again we may not know what specifically caused it. I'm sure they're investigating it. I'm sure um, you know there's a lot of finger pointing going on, but I don't want to hazard a guess one way or the other what it may have been. Nor does it particularly matter. I mean, it is what it is. Um, but it will be interesting to see what happens with the rebuilding process because. A lot of those families may be gone completely um, or, you know, their families don't want to build on that land again. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see what they do with it. Well, um, any more thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, I think we we pretty well covered it. Um, you know, just uh, another, another example of uh, vulnerable population to, um, what is unfortunately becoming all, all too common event of whatever the cause of, of wildfires, they start quick and they move quick uh, in environments that are full of combustible fuels in high drought conditions, which are becoming all the more common. And you're and more aware of that now too, I'm sure, Dan, because you moved from what the Midwest to the upper Northwest yeah. where there's much more risk for wildfires. Yeah, I never really thought about it before we moved here. And then uh, we got here in uh, mid-August of 2022 and wasn't a couple of weeks until um, the area around Waldo Lake here in Oregon caught on fire and burned many tens of thousands of acres and there was ash raining from the sky. I'm like, what in the world is this? Um, and this year, you know, um, we've, we've had a at least in our, our, our neck of the woods, um, some fortune uh, smiling upon us in terms of where the fires started. Um, they're more in kind of ravine areas and have been relatively uh, contained by the winds on the, on the Cascade Range. Uh, but yeah, still 30 something thousand acres. Last time I looked uh, with our the biggest one near us, the Bedrock Fire uh, is now pretty well contained, but had really smoky for better part of the month yeah, that's scary stuff so speaking of an aside here jamie are, are you getting any of that uh lee coming in at you in no it's far enough out there? to the coast that um it looks like it's going to come in and um provide some tropical storm force winds and some storm surge for martha's vineyard and the coastal areas of massachusetts 
Um, so that's where the impact's going to be there. And then strike somewhere, make landfall somewhere along the coast of Maine or Newfoundland. Um, it's, it's really hard to say uh, for sure because, you know, it's still enough variability that they don't know whether it's going to jog to the left or the right. But it's somewhere right along the, the Canadian-U.S. border, just, just there north of Maine. Um, and it'll be, you know, and, and the storm is uh, from the center. Hurricane force winds tra- are, are tracked out hundreds of miles on, in either direction. So they'll be dealing with hurricane and tropical force winds all up and down the New England coast, um, uh, wherever this lands. Yeah, it sounds like Nova Scotia was potential, too, for yeah, taking a Nova Scotia a hit. as well. I, I'm, my, my Canadian yeah. geography is lacking, <laughs> so I will, I will defer to our listeners to correct me on that, but uh, yes. I think I saw that on the Weather Channel, so I think we're good. Well, again, we don't know. We'll see what happens. Well, and, and that's, you know, we, we, we can't really know until these storms are like a day out where, when, when it really narrows that cone of, you know, possibility down, uh, and, you know, where they can make a much better guess. I think we're still, you know, three or four days out from landfall at this point, last time I looked. So uh, as we record this on Thursday, the 14th of September. So uh, Lee is going to strike somewhere. Um in the in U.S. Canada East Coast, but we just don't know exactly where. And of course, for a, a hurricane to track that far north is unusual, and it looks like it's going to maintain its tropical storm force winds well across Canada as it moves to the east out to sea. Um, so we'll see what the damage is as it lands. Is there we'll such a thing as unusual anymore? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and and I have to wonder, you know, is there a Canadian Jim Cantori? So that's what I want to know. <laughs> there probably is. Out there, uh, blowing in the wind. That's yep. that's what he does. Got I a love flannel that guy. weather jacket on. Maybe yeah, he, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Maybe he goes by Jim Cantor A. So we'll have to see. There, <laughs> there we go. I'll have to check in on that. Well, it, all things considered, it could have been much worse. Um, had the trajectory been different, as we know. So, and it finally, it it spared the states that take a beating most of the time. So that's not a bad thing. So, so Dan, the one thing I've never heard of any major weather events happening is Morocco. I thought that was kind of land bound. So we're not worried about hurricanes and water related stuff, but I, I, I didn't know they uh, had earthquakes there. Um, Jamie, do you know it? I mean, is that part of the Middle East? I think gets... there was a the, – the last time there was a severe earthquake there was about 100 years ago, according to some news reports I heard. I don't have the exact dates or anything, but it was it was a long time ago um, when the last earthquake hit. And, of course, a lot of urbanization and growth in population has happened since then. Yeah. They uh... – oh. The most recent one I saw was 1960, so magnitude 5.9. Um, yeah, took out a third of the population of the town of Agadir, which I probably butchered the name. Apologies for folks in Morocco, but uh, yeah, not very often. Well, that, this was what a six point 
nine, something yeah, like 6. that. Six point eight. Six point eight. Okay, that's pretty heavy duty. Yeah, especially it's, for it's an area like that's not prepared for huge, it. Huge, right? Like that's this is um, what's kind of fascinating from a maybe fascinating isn't quite the right word for it, but uh, interesting from a scientific uh, and and like structural. Uh, point of view, kind of the inter intersection of the geotechnical and the structural. You know, a 6.8 earthquake isn't all that remarkable unless it's in an area like Marrakesh, Morocco. Um, yeah. Because You're of right. the lack of buildings that are built for seismic activity. Well, in 100 years, I don't expect they, uh, that was on top of their stuff that's going to happen list. Um, right. <laughs> Absolutely, and it, it, we uh, have it other makes you priorities kind of, you know, here. Look at parallels over over here in the United States, even with good building codes and you know, a bit a bit less of the uh, you know influences of corruption in the construction industry and things like that. You think of an area like the uh, the Midwest with the New Madrid fault line that's going <laughs> to go any time now. Um, this could be like what places like, you know, Illinois and Indi parts of Indiana and Missouri look like uh, whenever that goes. Yeah. Because they're just not built my, for seismic resilience. My people in Missouri, where my uh, nonprofit is from, they talk about it quite a lot. Um, Dan, I have a question for you, and I don't know if you've got any data on this or heard anything about it, but um, one of the, the eyewitness reports um, right after the earthquake happened in Morocco from Marrakesh was that um, uh, an individual who was a, a traveler in Morocco noted that they were shocked at how unaffected the more modern areas of Marrakesh were, where the, you know, the modern hotels and restaurants and center of the city were compared to the historic areas of Marrakesh, um, where there was a lot of devastation. Um, they were pretty, they were pretty affected by that. I think there was a visiting soccer team from um, somewhere, uh, Ghana, I believe, um, where the uh, coach was talking about that, um, that they, they were really seeing a very widespread of levels of destruction. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, just one picture, so it's a you know, small, small data set here, but the, the type of buildings that collapsed versus the construction for those that survived, you know, it, it's a lot of um, uh, masonry, adobe, um, you know, a little bit of reinforced concrete, but very lightly reinforced concrete, and the buildings just pancaked down on people. Um, so you, you get that very strong shaking, and it just shears the bottom story of a, of a building, and then the top stories collapse into it. Very very similar to what happened in the in the Turkey and Syria earthquakes. Um, you know, and Northridge these, too, California. Yeah, Northridge well, too. Exactly. I worked yeah, that well, one, so yeah. Yeah, you have these three-story buildings suddenly became two-story buildings, and it took a while for them to figure that out. Wait a minute. <laughs> And they were digging right. people out by going through the floor to get mm -hmm. to that that level, and they fortunately got people out. So I hope that was the case this time. But yeah, looking at some of those pictures, it looked like they were made out of mud. Is that the yeah. adobe you're talking about? Yeah, it would be you know it's bricks with a you know a facade of you know like a skin coat, 
have you know similar type of uh, ceramic coating or or you know mud brick coating things like that is it's just cracks really easily uh even uh even if it's built out of concrete but just you know has that skin coat on top of it if the concrete isn't reinforced in the in a way that actually ties the whole building together uh for a load path um and if it's not isolated uh for for seismic uh loading then you're, you're out of luck there too well, one thing I'll throw in here, a little plug for my nonprofit, immediately, they they work strongly with Med Global now, and they immediately started a process of getting logistics set up to get supplies out there to them, and that, that's in full swing right now. And that's something, Jamie, I was going to mention to you, that they want to get a Med Global rep and Tim to come on and talk about that alliance and what we're doing with it. So it makes me feel good when we can actually do something. Yeah. You know, our processes are all in place. It's just a matter of where they're going to go. Yeah. We can definitely do an, do an episode on that and talk a little about those types of um, partnerships. Um, and Dan, you know, I, I Nary is an American um, research group, but I know that you share a lot of data with international um, research organizations that are doing similar work worldwide. So, you know, is this one of those situations like we saw in, in Syria and Turkey where, where um, there will be some um, international sharing of data and attention going on? Yeah, we, I was just checking our um, our Slack channels for that very thing uh, with the this, um, the structural uh, extreme event reconnaissance group, and they've they've started to talk about a response and how we can do uh, you know uh, virtual assessments uh, and, and give out a you know, preliminary report of, of that, um, and then. Informing a potential escalation to a full field assessment structural team at a, at a later date. So currently, they're just doing what we're doing right now, finding the best uh, information and pictures and things they can online and from local partners who are already there uh, to to take pictures and send send data and measurements, um, and then that will inform any uh, ability to be able to respond by sending teams out. Dan, didn't you say you had a friend in Morocco? Yeah, I was actually just checking uh, some messages from him. So uh, a buddy of mine through um, <laughs> our mutual love of carrying awkward, heavy objects long distances. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is a, 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 a retired, uh, I don't know if he's retired, but uh, he's a member of the Air Force. He's an Air Force combat controller, uh, special forces guy. Uh, Dan Skidmore, uh, he and his family live in live in Marrakesh. Um, super great guy, um, and he is just telling me how great the community is coming together on Morocco. It's just um, really good to see how the people are pulling together. The area, even with the earthquake, is, is safe to come to, easy to travel to, a really good experience for people who want to see that part of the world and. Uh, he's, he's opened up his couch to anybody who wants to, <laughs> to come and say hi. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of people probably looking for a couch right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was saying that the people in the mountains especially suffered the worst because of you know, everything we've been talking about outside of the main 
you know, modern built up area of Marrakesh. It's, it's, you know, just country homes built the best people can um, with the materials available. So it's a lot of that, you know, mud brick construction, unreinforced concrete, masonry, bricks, things like that, that, uh, you know, it goes up fast, goes up cheap, but um, it's not resilient to uh, heavy sustained shaking. Uh, so um, Dan was talking about uh, to his local contacts about how to bring supplies uh, using his special forces training and logistics. So um, I'm sure he's uh, plugged in with, um, with us folks over there to, to get supplies where they need to go. I suppose we could con him into doing a podcast at some point. I think you probably could. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome to hear, you know, a boots on the ground perspective. And uh, we're looking for more um, people in Morocco that can give us a good idea of what's going on and what the needs are. So it might be a good and one. It wouldn't have to be with. a long episode. It could be a short, you know, quick interview yeah. or something, you know, we can fold into yeah. something else. So that would be great. Be happy to happy to send him your way. He's a, he's a great guy. And we've been friends for a few years since we uh, carried a whole lot of Heavy stuff around uh, the shores <laughs> of uh, of northern France. <laughs> what were you doing in northern France? We, well, I, my wife and I and our youngest actually, when she was nine months old, we went to Normandy for the seventy fifth anniversary of D Day, and I did one of these events with a, a company that he um, uh, leads some uh, endurance events called Go Ruck, um, and we. Gosh, there's 76 of us or something, and we each carried a rucksack with a 30-pound steel plate in it from the eastern end of Omaha Beach to Point de Hoc, uh, 12, 12 miles or something like that most of the day, and some history lessons along the way from, from some Army Rangers, and it was pretty amazing. Who got to carry the baby? <laughs> Tracy carried the baby. She was, she was ah. uh, do, doing her own events. She was like, I don't want to do that getting up at 5 30 in the morning mm. thing, but I'll walk around with Felicity up in a baby carrier. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Well, again, this is going to be a big process of rebuilding for them. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Dan, one more question on that. Sure. Would the Moroccans be looking at building codes at this point or? Is it just one of these? So. Let's hope um, this doesn't happen for another hundred years. You know, that's that's really the, the one of the best tools to mitigate the impact of earthquakes is uh, a couple of things. One is conducting reliable seismic hazard studies, uh, which haven't been done that area, and then using those results to inform and implementing national building codes so that engineers can incorporate seismic safety into, into building design. Uh, so they need to take into account the, the characteristics of the soil and the way uh, seismic waves move and how the soil can amplify that movement during an earthquake and, and the expected shaking of the ground. So then uh, you can see how that would influence the behavior and, and, and damage of buildings. And, and this varies from, from city to city, from region to region. And so it, it's going to take uh, concerted effort between uh, you know, government agencies and scientists and engineers to to get that done. Um, but with you know, with uh, with enough will, there's always there's a way for sure. Well, I just hope it doesn't continue to happen. I don't think they're going to have to wait another hundred years the way the the world is going. What do you think, Jamie? 
Uh, yeah, and we'll have to see. You know, earthquakes are one of those things that we we you know we can see a hurricane coming. Um, we can't really see an earthquake coming as as well. Um, there are some precursors, but not anything like what we have with the weather systems and predictability there. Um, Dan, I want to thank you for coming on. And um, where where can folks find out more? I know we do this every time you come on, but Neri is such an amazing resource and collection of, of data and information for people interested in disaster aftermath and rebuilding. Um, where can they find more about what you all are doing? Yeah, uh, we're pretty easy to to find on uh, on Twitter. Is actually one of our most active platforms. Uh, Neri Design Safe, N H E R I Design Safe. You can follow us there. Uh, Instagram is and Facebook as well, and then our website designsafe-ci.org. And if you are really interested in becoming a part of one of these virtual assessment teams for the Moroccan earthquakes, you don't have to be a degree engineer to do that. Um, you can just join our slack channel there so if you click the little slack logo on the top of the design safe page you can register uh, it's free uh, and you can see what all of uh, my great colleagues in the extreme events uh, research and network are, are doing there fantastic um, and we also want to give a shout out to joe holly and the rest of the team over at paragonmedicalgroup.com um, to uh, thank them for their continued support and sponsorship of the prod the podcast and really encourage you to check out how they can bring some amazing resources to your community your community of responders at all levels where they will help you prepare for disaster in your community with some really great training evolutions. So check them out at, at paragonmedicalgroup.com. Also, Sam, uh, where can folks find you? The usual social media places and the disasterpodcast.com community group under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. And of course, disasterpodcast.com. Awesome. And you can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations, uh, the Disaster Podcast Facebook group, and also over at DisasterPodcast.com. And don't forget, when you're over at DisasterPodcast.com, there are links right there on the page to subscribe to the show using your favorite mobile device or even by email. And we'd love to have you do that so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. And with that, I will turn it back over to you, Sam. You know, I'm glad we were able to get Dan on here. And, of course, the way the world it is, uh, we were going to talk about the wildfires alone, but several other disasters have happened since we started lining up this call. I don't know, Dan. Can we blame that on you or, you know, maybe not. (laughs) You can you can blame me for a lot of things, but I don't I don't know that I can take full responsibility for causing uh, natural disasters. <laughs> well, it always gives us something to talk with you about, so that's not a bad thing. First thing yeah, after disaster, it's, it's, uh, one of the, my one of my favorite podcasts to come on. So you guys are just blast, and I appreciate your flexibility in the midst of the uh, back to school craziness in our household. For sure. So what was it? Let's close with that. Um, what you texted me today about earthquakes killing people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great quote from um, uh, Ian Kelman or Ilan Kelman at University of College London. He says, earthquakes don't kill people. Collapsing infrastructure does. It's so devastating simply because people were not ready. That encapsulates so well. Um, why it's, it's so important and I'm just really 
uh, glad to be a part of something like Nary that realizes you know, natural disasters are all preventable because it's the intersection of that infrastructure that's not prepared to fully uh, absorb a naturally occurring hazard. That's, that's, what, that's what kills people. Well, there you go. Enough said. Thanks, Dan.